0: Well, as we've seen today is Pentecost Sunday, Pentecost means 50th, it's also called the Feast of Weeks, celebrated in Leviticus 23, and it was 50 days from the Passover feast, it was when the grain harvesting would begin, 10 days after the ascension of Jesus, and so last Sunday we celebrated Ascension Thursday, before that... And so this is what we're celebrating this morning. It was also, though, Pentecost was also observed as the anniversary of the giving of the Old Covenant law on Mount Sinai, which was 50 days after the Exodus. And so at the celebration of the anniversary of the Old Covenant, the New Covenant dawns. We're going to be in the book of Acts. Turn to the book of Acts. If you have a Bible, if not, grab one of ours there in the chairs. You'll want one. It's page 855. We're going to look at the whole chapter. Let's consider together the gift of Pentecost, the meaning of Pentecost, and then the result of Pentecost. So first, the gift of Pentecost. Look with me at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Excuse me, 2, verses 1 to 11. The coming of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So they're all in this room and in this sort of theophany type experience, the Lord sends the Spirit, fills these disciples And they speak in tongues, speak in another language. They have sound, sight, and strange speech. They hear, they see, and they speak as the Lord sends this promised spirit. And notice that it says there's this sound, and Luke very carefully says it's a sound from heaven. Well, if we had been reading Acts back in chapter 1, we saw this last week, that Jesus Christ had ascended to heaven. In fact, just flip a page back to Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Acts 11 and said, Men of Galilee, why do you why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. So Pentecost is the ascended Lord Jesus acting by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the whole book of Acts really is about the risen Lord Jesus acting through his Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Remember, Acts is volume 2 of Luke's writing. In the first book, speaking of the gospel according to Luke, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So volume one, Luke, is what Jesus began to do and teach. Volume two, Acts, is what now Jesus is continuing to do. Now, by the Spirit, through his people. Jesus is acting through the Spirit. Jesus sends the Spirit. John the Baptist has said that he would baptize with water, but there was one coming later who was mightier than I. I wouldn't even be able to tie his sandals. He would baptize with the Holy Spirit. That is now happening here at Pentecost. So Jesus ascends to heaven and now every nation under heaven is gathered because this king has been installed, as we saw last week, with universal authority. He's the king of all nations as John Stott puts it, nothing could have demonstrated more clearly than this the multiracial, multinational, multilingual nature of the Kingdom of Christ. Pentecost is about the dawning of the new age, the new covenant with the new King who's been enthroned. In, in verses nine to eleven, all those names that are hard to pronounce, he lists several of these nations. And this list alludes at least in abbreviated form, back to Genesis 10 and 11. In the table of nations, you remember that? Babel. Humanity seeks to make a name for themselves, and so they build a tower, and God won't have it. He scatters them. He forces them to do what God had commanded them to do in Genesis 1, which was to go, spread out, be fruitful, and multiply and spread his rule all over the world. Instead, they didn't want to. Instead, they tried to come together. We have the table of nations there in Genesis 10 And 11, so Pentecost here is the reversal of that. Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. Again, John Stott says at Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven. But at Pentecost, heaven humbly descends to earth. At Babel, sinful humanity tried to avoid filling the earth and God judges them by confusing their languages and scatters them throughout the earth. At Pentecost... God causes people from those same scattered nations to unite in Jerusalem. Verse 6 here in Acts 2 says they were bewildered. Maybe your translation says confused. That very same word is used in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. It says this, come let us go down they're confused, same word, their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. The Spirit here is reversing the curse. For a moment, mankind's divisions, expressed through language, were overcome. God's curse on the world is being reversed through Pentecost. Here we just get a little glimpse of where it's all going. It's what we just read together. Ephesians 1, 9, 10, and 11, that God is going to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ, under the King. We get a glimpse of where it's all going. Revelation 5, 9, that by the blood of the Lamb were ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. That's the gift of Pentecost. What about the meaning of Pentecost? It's complicated. It's a long chapter. We really have two layers of meaning. First, we have the outpouring of the Spirit in verses 13 to 21, and then we have the enthronement of Jesus in 22 to 36. So first, let's consider the outpouring of the Spirit. Look at verse 12 of Acts chapter 2. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter... Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Peter's like, listen, no, they're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. Although I will say there are always exceptions. I was on a recent 6.30 a.m. flight and the brother next to me ordered two crown royals. It's like, what do you have planned for the rest of the day? Now, the fruit of the spirit is self-control, not the loss of it. And so Peter here comes out and he addresses the crowd. Next week we'll be back in Matthew, and we'll see the cowardice of Peter that is transformed into this courage by the spirits. And he comes out and he preaches. In fact, I was here when I was in uh, Israel a couple of weeks, got a picture for you. This is one of the most meaningful, top five moments in Israel was being able to stand here on the southern steps of the former temple, and they've rebuilt steps, but they've also left several of them exposed. So the steps that Peter would have been preaching on, what you see down at the bottom is a bunch of ritual baths when 3,000 people are saved, this is where they would have been baptized. Peter comes out and he preaches with boldness. He's witnessing. He's already fulfilling what Jesus said he would fulfill, right again. What was the promise? Look back again at Acts chapter one, verse eight. What did he say? "You will receive power. How did he go from being a coward to courageous? He received power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Peter is witnessing boldly. Look at verse 16. He's doing a little bit of expositional preaching here from the book of Joel. Verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Quotation, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness in the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2. But fascinatingly, Peter actually modifies Joel chapter 2. Joel doesn't say it in the last days. Joel says afterwards. Peter here has in the last days. Now, the phrase last days happens a couple times in Scripture, but these four words in that order, in the last days, only happens in one other place in the entire Bible. My view of Scripture tells me that's not accidental. So what is Peter doing here? Well, this phrase, in the last days, actually comes from Isaiah chapter 2. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 2.2. Two. It shall come to pass, ESV says, in the latter days. It's the exact same phrase again, only found in Acts chapter 2. In this way, in this order. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, the temple, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter two is promising the new restored glorious temple. Something new was needed. If you remember in Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple in judgment, abandons the house. And you know what? He never returns in the Old Testament. So many ways we could be asking, when will the glory of the Lord return? It doesn't return until Acts chapter 2, as the glory cloud comes down and now dwells not in a place, but in a people. God's making good on his promise. So Peter is combining the visions of Isaiah 2 and Joel 2. God's rebuilding his temple. His presence has now returned. Pentecost is the fulfillment of these promises and more. See, that was the problem. There was really a two-fold problem with old covenant Israel. They just committed idolatry again and again and again. The twofold problem was, number one, they didn't have full and final forgiveness of sins. They had to go to the temple again and again and again every year, reminding that their sin wasn't taken care of. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But also, they had hard hearts. They had stiff necks. They needed inward transformation. And so prophet after prophet promises that in the new covenant, those two things will be given. Full and final forgiveness of sins That's what we'll celebrate here in a moment. But also, the gift of the Holy Spirit who will transform us from the inside out. That was the problem. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would act on various people in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, mostly prophets and priests and kings, to do specific tasks and usually for a limited duration. They didn't have transformation that would last. That's what they needed. The people of God desperately needed the Spirit of God. Moses realized this. Let me read from Numbers chapter 11, verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant, And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Skipping down to verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you, and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of this people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Skipping down to verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tents. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. You see the problem. The Spirit wasn't on all the people, it wasn't even on all the leaders, it was only on Moses. But God grants grace here and shares some of it with these 70. But then notice what he says. I'll read to you verse 29 of Numbers 11. Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses felt the problem. He was dealing with this stiff-necked people. Would that the Lord would send his spirit on all of them, not just me and not just these 70. That was the problem with the old covenant. The mentor of mine used to say the old covenant should have come with a sticker on it that says, Batteries Not Included. It told them what to do, but it gave them no power to obey. That was the issue. Listen to the way the prophet Isaiah puts it. In Isaiah 32, verse 15. Speaking of the coming kingdom, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Or Isaiah chapter 44, verse 2. It says, much the same. Lord, when will you come and when will you pour out your Spirit upon all your people? Isaiah 44, 2. Thus says the Lord, who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jerusalem, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Ezekiel says the same in Ezekiel 11, 19, and 20. When will it come? I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my rules, and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. The promises of the prophets is that God will come and deal definitively with sin, but also that he'll send his spirit, that his people might be able then to obey That's what Pentecost is about, God keeping his promise. The Spirit comes at Pentecost, just like Joel prophesied, and the Spirit makes us new. And notice, he makes all the people of God new, and he empowers all of the people of God, all flesh, he says, regardless of age, gender, or status. So we have the pouring out of the Spirit. That's the first element of the meaning of Pentecost. But then we have the enthronement of Jesus. Look at verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. As we know from the Gospels, Jesus was attested to by miracles. His message was confirmed, and he was delivered up. And notice here the accent. He was delivered up according to God's definite plan, God's foreknowledge. See, the cross was planned before God even created the world. God sovereign over all things. Jesus is the lamb slain before the creation of the world. But notice the balance here that Peter provides. God is sovereign and yet man is responsible. The Bible teaches these two truths from beginning to end. God is sovereign. We are responsible. This Jesus was predestined to be crucified, but you, lawless men, crucified. Who did it? God or lawless men? And the Bible says yes. Look at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, Another quotation, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades to let your, or let your Holy One seek corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Christ is raised from the dead. Through the resurrection, God ends the pain of death death is dead because of the death of christ it was impossible he says death couldn't hold him was not possible and then peter here continues his exposition of the old testament he quotes from psalm 16 which ultimately is about jesus not david why because david did see corruption it couldn't have been about him he was married you can go look at his tomb it's not talking about this david it's talking about a greater david and david was a prophet And God promised him that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of David. And Peter says, this is fulfilled when Jesus Christ was resurrected and enthroned. Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, quote, God's favorite verse, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So God raised him up, put him at his right hand, having received the promise of the Spirit, Jesus the exalted risen and reigning lord then pours out the spirit. Jesus is the spirit and dwelt servant that Isaiah promised, the one who himself bears the spirit. Isaiah 11, you know this verse from Christmas time, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots, shall bear fruit and the spirits of the lord shall rest on him. Isaiah 42, about the servant, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Isaiah 61, 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. It's the passage Jesus starts his ministry in Luke 4. The bearer of the spirit, Jesus Christ, becomes the bestower of the spirit and he pours it out on his people. And take note in Joel, it's Yahweh who pours out the Spirit. In Acts, it's Jesus Christ who pours out the Spirit. And again, David, he didn't ascend, but he did speak of another Lord who would ascend, as he quotes Psalm 110. And Peter concludes his sermon saying, Let all of Israel know that God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Christ, whom they crucified. Jesus is the Lord of the world. He's the risen and reigning king. He directs the affairs of the world, and he does so by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is his executive power. David wasn't raised. David wasn't placed on the throne. Jesus did both. It's the meaning of Pentecost, the gift of the Spirit and the exaltation of Jesus. Well, what does it produce? What's the results then of Pentecost? Again, two results. Two results. Of the pouring out of the Spirit and the exaltation of Jesus, salvation and a spirit filled community. First, salvation, look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Friend, I wonder if you're here and you've ever been cut to the heart. What does that mean? Convicted of sin. Conscious stricken. Have you ever had the moment where you realized, oh snap, I'm a sinner and God is holy. I have sinned against a holy God. That moment of crisis, if you haven't had that moment of crisis, you're probably not a Christian. That's where it has to begin. You have to see your need. Have you had that? Have you seen your need? Have you been cut to the hearts? If you have, what's the call? Maybe you're there now. I prayed that you would be. What is the call then of God? We'll look at verse 21. There he says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, what are you to do? Call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, I'm a sinner. I need salvation. Would you save me? It's that simple. What's the call? It's to call upon the name of the Lord. What else does he say the call is? Well, we just saw Look again at verse 38. What's the call? Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent. You'll be forgiven. You'll be filled with the Spirit. What's the call here at the beginning of Acts, just like at the beginning of the Gospels? Repent and believe. Repentance is this radical reorientation of our life. It's to turn from sin into Christ. It's centering our lives around the Lord and not ourselves. What else is the call? Look at verse 41. Same thing with other language. Those who received his word. Well, what do you need to do today? You need to receive his word. By the way, footnote everything that I'm talking about here can't be done by infants. This is kind of an infant baptism proof text. It doesn't work with anything I'm saying, calling on the Lord, receiving his word. This is for believers. It's to believe. It's to call on the name of the Lord. It's to receive the word. What else does it say? Look at verse 44. All who believed. The promise is for those who believe. And so the call of the gospel is to believe in Jesus Christ. It's to call upon him. It's to repent. It's to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. It's to then be baptized in that order. And incredibly, those who received the word this day were 3,000. Can you imagine? That's what was so meaningful to be at the Southern Steps. 3,000 people. Talk about church growth. They went from 120 to 3,120 with one sermon by a guy who had rejected Jesus three times. Why? Because the power of the Spirit of God. 3,000 save it's the beginning of the new covenant do you remember the old covenant Moses is still on the mountain the people of God get impatient and so they develop their own idol they melt the gold and they put it together into a calf and they give it credit they're tired of Moses waiting the giving of the old covenant law and what do they do they form a false god and give it the glory And how does God respond? He responds in judgment. Exodus chapter 32, verse 28. God comes in judgment. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. Giving of the old covenant, 3,000 die in judgment because of idolatry. Why? They lack the spirit. Beginning of the new covenant, Pentecost, 3,000 are saved. Pentecost is the reversal of the curse. The old covenant being replaced by a new and better covenant. What are the other results? Number one, salvation. Second, a spirit-filled community. Look again at First 42. The temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Spirit creates a community, and notice what they're doing. They're focusing, they're devoted in five areas. Number one, teaching. Verse 42 They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were committed to learning about God. They were committed to being a people of the book. As John Stott says, the Spirit opened a school that day in Jerusalem. He says anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. And so a Spirit-filled community prioritizes the book that the Spirit authored. They were ruled by God's word, as we say around here. Second, fellowship. They're devoted to fellowship. In other words, they were committed to one another. They were devoted to sharing and doing life together. Devoted to the fellowship. Verse 46 says day by day. They were committed to intentional Christian relationships. The local church is just absolutely crucial to a flourishing faith. The early church did life together and they knew the needs of their community and they met their needs. Families were taking care of families. That's what happens. They value people even over their own property. They were, as we speak, they were in authentic community. Third, what else? The breaking of bread. Devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, some people take this as the Lord's Supper and Dallas it often included that, but verse 46 says day by day. So I think it's a broader issue of just hospitality. Day by day in their homes, they were known for their hospitality. They were eating together all the time. They were opening their homes to one another on the regular. And friends, and busy, and all of us are so busy today, this won't happen unless we just prioritize it. We've got to block out a day or block out a night, block out a lunch. We've got to put hospitality on the cowl if it's going to happen. And they were devoted to it because God has designed something special to happen while we're sharing bread. The dinner table is the most sacred spot in the house and fellowship and the breaking of bread, they go together. Baptists love potlucks for a reason. It's not just our rampant obesity, actual fellowship happens there. Did you notice there was no and? You're paying close attention to the text. There is no and between fellowship and breaking of bread. Look at it again there. To the breaking of bread, and sorry, to the fellowship to. Let me just read it all again. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Because you know what? Actually, it says the fellowship in the breaking of bread. There's no and separating. Why? Because fellowship happens in the breaking of bread. And so let me just encourage you to redeem your meals. Redeem your meals. You're already eating, right? You're all eating something like 15 to 25 times a day. It's already You already have that rhythm, and so redeem it. Don't eat alone. Eat with other Christians and talk about Jesus. They were devoted to the breaking of bread together. What else? Fourth, prayer. Devoted to, and in fact, it says the prayers. They believed that God heard them, and so... They asked him. They knew God had the power to act. And so prayer should be the church's lifeblood. Yes, on our own. Absolutely. You ought to have a daily time where you have uninterrupted time of prayer. Also, I hope as you have D groups, I hope you have time for prayer in there. If not, you have that hour, make five minutes of it prayer. If you're not praying in your D groups, they need to dissolve. Pray together in your D groups, pray together in your home groups. Come to Sunday night. One of the sweetest times we have in our church calendar is our Sunday night prayer meeting. If you haven't come, you should come. You should come. First and third, where we come together corporately and pray. Fifth, demonstrating the kingdom. Look at verse 43. All came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. As we know from Acts, the apostles did all kinds of signs and wonders and the community was in awe. Now, this is going to look different for us. We're not apostles. Their message needed to be confirmed and authenticated and testified to. By signs and wonders, these evidence of the inbreaking power of the kingdom. So, ours will look different, but we still need to demonstrate the incoming kingdom in various ways. We still, as the church, are an outpost of the kingdom. We show the watching world what the kingdom looks like. We're like a movie trailer for the kingdom, a preview of what life under the rule of Jesus is to look like. And I think really there's one word that should challenge us more than any in this whole section of the results of the pouring out of the Spirit, and it's that word devoted. Devoted. I would just ask you, friend, does your life consist of devotion? Are you devoted to these things? The word means to occupy ourselves diligently with something. To pay persistent attention to something. To hold fast to something. To continually be in. It was constant in their attention. They were devoted to these things. Or better, they were devoted to Jesus Christ. And this is what a life devoted to Jesus Christ looks like. A life in community on mission. Let's resolve to become more devoted. The apostles teaching fellowship, eating, praying, Demonstrating what the kingdom looks like. And notice how Luke characterizes these first Christians. Four characterizations. One, they had glad hearts. Did you see that in verse 46? They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Christians should be the most joyful people around, there should be no dour Christians. Because we deserve nothing but condemnation. That's the only thing we deserve here this morning is condemnation. And here we are, we're alive. And our names are written in the book of life. Our sins are forgiven. The victory over evil has been won on our behalf. The victory is assured for us. The tomb is empty and the right man is running the universe. It's going to be okay. Smile. This fruit of the Spirit is joy. What else? Generous, generous hearts. Giving hearts. Flip over a page or two to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. We have more description of the early church's life. Acts four thirty-two. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. See, they had been gripped by the God who gives and it caused them to give. Again, they valued people over possessions. Third, they were characterized by praise. Verse 47. Praising God. They were a people of praise because they knew that they had been saved from. We come together and we praise God corporately. We sing and we sing loud. Those who know the goodness and the grace of God are compelled to sing. You know, Christianity is one of the unique religions that sings corporately. Because we have a reason to sing. And then fourth, multiplication. They multiplied. Healthy churches multiply. God is a missionary God who creates a missionary church. God sent His Son who sends the Spirit who sends the church. Again, Stott says, those first Jerusalem Christians were not so preoccupied with learning, sharing, and worshiping that they forgot about witnessing. For the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit who created a missionary church. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. It's the multiplication of churches. You have, I love the fact that you have the persecution that begins in Acts 8, and Luke records that the church scatters all over the place, quote, except the apostles. The so-called professional Christians stayed put. Who went out and took over? Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Ordinary Christians whose names aren't even recorded. No special training, no seminary degrees, just people passionate about Jesus Christ. At the end of Acts 8, you have the first mission trip taken by another ordinary dude, a layman named Philip. And then the church at Antioch, Acts 13, it becomes this key hub for planting churches. And you know who it was founded by? This key hub, one of the most influential churches in the entire Bible, Antioch. Founded by, quote, some brothers and sisters. End quote. Luke doesn't even tell us their names. Here's how one historian puts it. Nothing is more notable than the anonymity of these early missionaries. Luke does not turn aside to mention the name of a single one of these, those pioneers who laid the foundation. Few, if any, of the great churches were really founded by apostles. Peter and Paul may have organized the church in Rome. They certainly did not found it. And so they were a community committed to multiplication. That's why their fellowship was so tight. You know, here we are in Acts 2, speaking of this tight fellowship, but we don't have Acts 2 fellowship without Acts 1 mission, Acts 1-8, that you will receive power when you're my witnesses and you go and spread. Acts 2 doesn't happen without Acts 1. I mean, some of you have been on short-term mission trips or long-term mission trips. And there may be people that don't live around here that you joined up with. And there's just just a close knitting that happens on the mission field, right? And you maybe haven't seen those people in weeks or months or years, but you can sit down beside them and just pick up like it was yesterday. Why? Because the Spirit does something special when it comes to our fellowship when we're on mission together. It's the way He designed it. So what if we just viewed all of life as a short-term mission trip? Healthy churches multiply, and church, it's time for Southside to multiply. It's time for us to be thinking about multiplication. This room has, you know, it's Memorial Day with no college students, but this room has been 80% full now for quite some time. And there's needs all around our community, especially down south. And so the leadership's been praying and scheming and strategizing And uh, we're excited about what's next. We don't know exactly what's next, but we think this is where the Lord's leading. It's time to multiply. And so we just ask you, invite you, would you join us in praying that the Lord would clearly lead and guide? And would you be filled with the Spirit and witnessing that people might be reached? Would you be giving? We want to be able to plant well. And honestly, right now, we wouldn't be able to do that. And so we need funds to be able to plant well or replant if the Lord opens that door. So join us we we'll see what the Lord would have us in this next season. And notice how Luke here highlights both our behavior, what we're to do, but again, the sovereignty of God. Why does the church grow? The Lord adds, yes and amen, and we have our responsibility. The Lord added, the Lord is the one who draws people to himself. But also here in verse 47, they also gained favor with all the people. The idea is they had goodwill towards the people. They had a gracious attitude towards the world and a demeanor that led to gracious actions. And the Lord used that to add to the church. God is sovereign. We're responsible. We need to be active, but active in dependence upon the spirits. And there's been life centuries-long debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. God's the one who does everything, Man does everything. Those are probably not fair caricatures. But here's what we ought to do we ought to act and pray and work and evangelize as if it were all up to us. Work like Arminians and then go to bed like Calvinists and sleep well, knowing God's got to do it all our parts and his parts. Pentecost creates a spirit filled community that is committed to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, praying, demonstrating the kingdom, which is characterized by gladness, generosity, praise, and gospel centered multiplication.